0: section 8 of beacon lights of history volume 11 american founders by john lord this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by k hand george washington part three at this crisis baron steuben a prussian officer who had served under Frederick the great arrived at the headquarters of washington some say that he was a mere martinet but he was exceedingly useful in drilling the american troops working from morning till night, both patient and laborious. From that time, Washington had regular troops on which he could rely, few in number but loyal and true. Lafayette also was present in his camp, chivalrous and magnanimous, rendering efficient aid, and there too was Nathaniel Green of Rhode Island, who had made but one great mistake in his military career, the most able of Washington's generals with the aid of these trusted lieutenants washington was able to keep his little army together as the nucleus of a greater one and wait for opportunities for he loved to fight when he saw a chance of success and now it may be said that the desertions which had crippled washington the reluctance to enlist on the part of the farmers and the tardy response to his calls for money probably were owing to the general sense of security after the surrender of burgoyne it was felt that the cause of liberty was already won With this feeling, men were slow to enlist when they were not sure of their pay, and it was at this period that money was most difficult to be raised. Had there been a strong central government and not a mere League of States, some Moses would have smitten the rock of finance, as Hamilton subsequently did, and Chase in the War of the Southern Rebellion and abundant streams would have gushed forth in the shape of national bonds, certain to be redeemed sooner or later in solid gold and silver, and which could have been readily negotiated by the leading bankers of the world. The real difficulty with which Congress and Washington had to contend was a financial one. There were men enough to list in the army if they had been promptly paid. Yet on the other hand, England, with ample means and lavish promises, was able to induce only about 3,000 Tories out of all the American population, to enlist in her armies in America during the whole war. By patience unparalleled and efforts unceasing, Washington slowly wrought upon Congress to sustain him in building up a Continental Army in place of the shifting bodies of militia. With Steuben as Inspector General and Green as Quartermaster, the new levies as they came in were disciplined and equipped, and in spite of the conspiracies and cabals formed against him by ambitious subordinates, which enlisted the aid of many influential men even in Congress, but which came to naught before the solid character and steady front of the man who was really carrying the whole war upon his shoulders, Washington emerged from the frightful winter at Valley Forge and entered the spring of 1778 with greater resources at his command than he had ever had before. In January 1778, France acknowledged the independence of the United States of America and entered into treaty with them. In the spring, Sir William Howe resigned, and Sir Henry Clinton succeeded him in command. After wintering in Philadelphia, the British commander discovered that he could do nothing with his troops shut up in a luxurious city, while Washington was watching him in a strongly entrenched position a few miles distant, and with constantly increasing forces now trained to war. And moreover, a French fleet with reinforcements was now looked for. So he evacuated the Quaker city on the 18th of June, 1778, and began his march to New York, followed by washington with an army now equal to his own on the 28th of june cornwallis was encamped near monmouth new jersey where was fought the most brilliant battle of the war which washington nearly lost nevertheless by the disobedience of lee his second in command at a critical moment boiling with rage the commander-in-chief rode up to lee and demanded why he had disobeyed orders then it is said With a tremendous oath, he sent the Marplot to the rear, and Lee's military career ignominiously ended. Four years after, this military adventurer, who had given so much trouble, died in a mean tavern in Philadelphia, disgraced, unpitied, and forlorn. The Battle of Monmouth did not prevent the orderly retreat of the British to New York, when Washington resumed his old post at White Plains, east of the Hudson in Westchester County whence he had some hopes of moving on New York, with the aid of the French fleet under the Count de Stang. But the big French ships could not cross the bar, so the fleet sailed for Newport with a view of recapturing that town and repossessing Rhode Island. Washington sent Green and Lafayette thither with reinforcements for Sullivan, who was in command. The enterprise failed from an unexpected storm in November, which compelled the French admiral to sail to Boston to refit, after which he proceeded to the West Indies. It would appear that the French thus far sought to embarrass the English rather than to assist the Americans. The only good that resulted from the appearance of Destaing at Newport was the withdrawal of the British troops to New York. It is singular that the positions of the opposing armies were very much as they had been two years before. The headquarters of Washington were at White Plains on the Hudson and those of Clinton at New York, commanding the harbor and the neighboring heights. Neither army was strong enough for offensive operations with any reasonable hope of success, and the commanding general seemed to have acted on the maxim that discretion is the better part of valor. Both armies had been strongly reinforced, and the opposing generals did little else than fortify their positions and watch each other. A year passed in virtual inaction on both sides, except that the British carried on a series of devastating predatory raids in New England along the coast of Long Island Sound in New York State with the savage aid of the Indians in New Jersey and in the South, there making a more formal movement and seizing the coast of Georgia and South Carolina. No battles of any account were fought. There was some skirmishing, but no important military movements were made on either side. Washington in December 1778 removed his headquarters to Middlebrook, New Jersey, his forces being distributed in a series of camps from the Delaware north and east to Rhode Island. The winter he passed in patient vigilance, he wrote expostulating letters to Congress and even went personally to Philadelphia to labor with its members. Meanwhile, Clinton was taking his ease to the disgust of the British government. There was a cavilling, criticizing spirit among the different parties in America, for there were many who did not comprehend the situation and who were disappointed that nothing decisive was done. Washington was infinitely annoyed at the stream of detraction which flowed from discontented officers and civilians in power, but held his soul in patience, rarely taking any notice of the innumerable slanders and hostile insinuations. He held together his army, now chiefly composed of veterans, and nearly as numerous as the troops of the enemy. One thing he saw clearly that the maintenance of an army in the field, held together by discipline, was of more importance from a military point of view than the occupation of a large city or annoying raids of destruction. While he was well entrenched in a strong position and therefore safe, the British had the command of the Hudson, and ships of war could ascend the river unmolested as far as West Point, which was still held by the Americans and was impregnable. Outside of New York, the British did not possess a strong fortress in the country, at least in the interior, except on Lake Champlain, not one in new england west point therefore was a great eyesore to the english generals and admirals its possession would be of incalculable advantage in case any expedition was sent to the north and the enemy came very near getting possession of this important fortress not by force but by treachery benedict arnold disappointed in his military prospects alienated from his cause overwhelmed with debts and utterly discontented and demoralized had asked to be ordered from philadelphia and put in command of west point he was sent there in august 1780 he was a capable and brave man he had the confidence of washington in spite of his defects of character and moreover he had rendered important services in an evil hour he lost his head and listened to the voice of the tempter and having succeeded in getting himself put in charge of the stronghold of the hudson he secretly negotiated with Clinton for its surrender. Everybody is familiar with the details of that infamy, which is inexplicable on any other ground than partial insanity. No matter what may be said, in extenuation, Arnold committed the greatest crime known to civilized nations. He contrived to escape the just doom which awaited him, and from having become traitor, even proceeded to enter the active service of the enemy and to raise his hand against the country, which, but for these crimes, would have held him in honorable remembrance. The heart of English-speaking nations has ever been moved to compassion for the unfortunate fate of the messenger who conducted the treasonable correspondence between Arnold and Clinton, one of the most accomplished officers in the British Army, Major Andre. No influence, not even his deeply moved sympathy, could induce Washington to interfere with the decision of the court-martial that Andre should be hanged as a spy, so dangerous did the commander deem the attempted treachery. The English have erected to the unfortunate officer a monument in Westminster Abbey. The contemplated surrender of West Point to the enemy suggests the demoralization which the war had already produced, and which was deplored by no one more bitterly than by Washington himself. If I were called upon, he writes, to draw a picture of the times and of men, from what I have seen, heard, and in part know, I should in one word say that idleness, dissipation, and extravagance seem to have laid fast hold of most of them that speculation, peculation, and an insatiable thirst for riches seem to have got the better of every other consideration, that party disputes and personal quarrels are the great business of the day, whilst the momentous concerns of an empire and accumulating debt, ruined finances, depreciated money, and want of credit are but secondary considerations. All war produces naturally and logically this demoralization, especially in countries under a republican government. Profanity, drunkenness, and general recklessness as to money matters were everywhere prevailing vices, and this demoralization was, in the eyes of Washington, more to be dreaded than any external dangers that had thus far caused alarm and distress. I have, wrote he, seen without despondency even for a moment the hours which America has styled her gloomy ones, but I have beheld no day since the commencement of hostilities that I have thought her liberties were in such imminent danger as at present." He had faced, says Henry Cabot Lodge in his interesting life of Washington, the enemy, the bleak winters, raw soldiers, and all the difficulties of impecunious government with a cheerful courage that never failed. But the spectacle of widespread popular demoralization, of selfish scramble for plunder, and of feeble administration at the center of government weighed upon him heavily. And all this at the period of the French alliance, which it was thought would soon end the war, Indeed, hostilities were practically over at the north, and hence the public lassitude. Nearly two years had passed without an important battle. When Clinton saw that no hope remained of subduing the Americans, the British government should have made peace and recognized the independence of the states. But the obstinacy of the King of England was phenomenal, and his ministers were infatuated. They could not reconcile themselves to the greatness of their loss. Their hatred of the rebels was too bitter for reason to conquer. Hitherto the contest had not been bloody nor cruel few atrocities had been committed except by the rancorous tories who slaughtered and burned without pity and by the indians who were paid by the british government prisoners on the whole had been humanely treated by both the contending armies although the british prison ships of new york and their thousand martyrs have left a dark shadow on the annals of time neither in boston nor new york nor philadelphia had the inhabitants uttered loud complaints against the soldiers who had successively occupied their houses, and who had lived as comfortably and peaceably as soldiers in English garrison towns. Some villages had been burned, but few people had been massacred. More inhumanity was exhibited by both Greeks and Turks in the Greek Revolution in one month than by the forces engaged during the whole American war. The Prime Minister of England, Lord North, was the most amiable and gentle of men. The brothers Howe would fain have carried the olive branch in one hand while they bore arms in the other. It seemed to be the policy of England to do nothing which would inflame animosities and prevent the speedy restoration of peace. Spies, of course, were hanged and traitors were shot, in accordance with the uniform rules of war. I do not read of a bloodthirsty English general in the whole course of the war, like those Russian generals who overwhelmed the Poles. Nor did the English generals seem to be really in earnest, or they would have been bolder in their operations and would not have been contented to be shut up for two years in New York when they were not besieged. At length, Clinton saw he must do something to satisfy the government at home, and the government felt that a severer policy should be introduced into warlike operations. Clinton perceived that he could not penetrate into New England, even if he could occupy the maritime cities. He could not ascend the Hudson. He could not retain New Jersey. But the South was opened to his armies and had not been seriously invaded. As Washington personally was not engaged in the military operations at the South, I can make only a passing allusion to them. It is not my object to write a history of the war, but merely to sketch it so far as Washington was directly concerned. The South was left, in the main, to defend itself against the raids which the British generals made in its defenseless territories, and these were destructive and cruel. But Gates was sent to cope with Cornwallis and Tarleton. Washington himself could not leave his position near New York, as he had to watch Clinton, defend the Hudson, and make journeys to Philadelphia to urge Congress to more vigorous measures. Congress, however, was helpless and the state governments were inactive. In the meantime, early in May 1780, Charleston, South Carolina, was abandoned to the enemy, General Lincoln, who commanded, finding it indefensible. In September, the news came north of the Battle of Camden and the defeat of Gates, who showed an incompetency equal to his self-sufficiency, and Congress was obliged to remove him. Through Washington's influence, in December 1780, Green was appointed to succeed him. Had the chief's advice been followed earlier, he would have been sent originally instead of Gates. Green turned the tide and began those masterly operations which led to the final expulsion of the English from the South, and under the guiding mind and firm hand of Washington, to the surrender of Cornwallis. On January 17, 1781, Morgan won a brilliant victory at Cowpens, South Carolina, which seriously embarrassed Cornwallis, and then succeeded a vigorous campaign between Cornwallis and Green for several months over the Carolinas and the borders of Virginia. The losses of the British were so great, even when they had the advantage, that Cornwallis turned his face to the north with a view of transferring the seat of war to Chesapeake Bay. Washington then sent all the troops he could spare to Virginia under Lafayette. He was further aided by the French fleet under de Grasse, whom he persuaded to sail to the Chesapeake. Lafayette here did good service, following closely the retreating army. Clinton failed to reinforce Cornwallis, some say from jealousy, so that the latter felt obliged to fortify himself at Yorktown. Washington, who had been planning attack on New York, now continued his apparent preparations to deceive Clinton, but crossed the Hudson on the 23rd of August to cooperate with a French fleet and 3,000 French troops in Virginia to support Lafayette. He rapidly moved his available force by swift marches across New Jersey to Elkton, Maryland, at the head of the Chesapeake Bay. The northern troops were brought down the Chesapeake in transports, gathered by great exertions, and on September 28th landed at Williamsburg on the Yorktown Peninsula. Cornwallis was now hemmed in by the combined French and American armies. Had he possessed the control of the sea, he might have escaped, but as the fleet commanded the Chesapeake, this was impossible. He had well fortified himself, however, and on the 5th of October the siege of Yorktown began, followed on the 14th by an assault. On the 19th of October, 1781, Cornwallis was compelled to surrender with 7,000 troops. The besieging army numbered about 5,000 French and 11,000 Americans. The success of Washington was owing to the rapidity of his movements and the influence which. With Lafayette, he brought to bear for the retention at this critical time and place of the fleet of the Count de Grasse, who was disposed to sail to the West Indies, as Stang had done the year before. Washington's keen perception of the military situation, energetic promptness of action, and his diplomatic tact and address in this whole affair were remarkable. The surrender of Cornwallis virtually closed the war. The swift concentration of forces from north and south was due to Washington's foresight and splendid energy, while its success was mainly due to the French, without whose aid the campaign could not have been concluded. The moral and political effect of this crowning mercy was prodigious. In England it broke up the ministry of Lord North and made the English nation eager for peace, although it was a year or two before hostilities ceased. And it was not until September third, 1783 that the treaty was signed, which Franklin, Adams, and Jay had so adroitly negotiated. The English King would have continued the contest against all hope, encouraged by the possession of New York and Charleston, but his personal government practically ceased with the acknowledgment of American independence. The trials of Washington, however, did not end with the great victory at Yorktown. There was a serious mutiny in the army, which required all his tact to quell, arising from the neglect of Congress to pay the troops. There was greater looseness of morals throughout the country than has been generally dreamed of. I apprehend that farmers and mechanics were more profane and drank, per capita, more cider and rum for twenty years succeeding the war than at any other period in our history. It was then that it was intimated to Washington in a letter from his friend, Colonel Louis Nicola, that the state of the country and the impotence of Congress made it desirable that he should seize the government and, supported by the army, turn all the confusion into order which probably would have been easy for him to do, and which would have been justified by most historical writers. But Washington repelled the idea with indignation, both for himself and the army, and not only on this occasion, but on others when disaffection was rife, he utilized his own popularity to arouse anew the loyalty of the sorely tried patriots, his companions in arms. Many are the precedents of usurpation on the part of successful generals, and few indeed are those who have voluntarily abdicated power from lofty and patriotic motives. It was this virtual abdication which made so profound an impression on the European world, even more profound than was created by the military skill which Washington displayed in the long war of seven years. It was a rare instance of magnanimity and absence of ambition which was not without its influence on the destinies of America making it almost impossible for any future general to retain power after his work was done, and setting a proud and unique example of the superiority of moral excellence over genius and power. End of Section 8